Episode 158, Karen Hold, author of the book, Experiencing Design, The Innovator's Journey. So my favorite mistake takes me back uh, about 20 years. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For more information about Karen, her company, her book, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markgraven.com slash mistake 158. As always, thanks for listening. And now here's the episode. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. And our guest today is Karen Hold. She is the founder of Experience Labs, and her work is grounded in a core belief that design thinking provides an enabling social technology that facilitates adaptation and effective problem solving in complex social systems. So there's a lot to dig into there in our conversation today. Karen began her career in business and strategy on the Folgers Coffee brand team in the early 90s, part of Procter & Gamble. She was influenced greatly by the work of, uh, I'll call him the legendary management author and thinker, Tom Peters. Tom was actually the guest here on episode 58 of My Favorite Mistake. He's a big influence on, uh, on me as well. Karen is one of the authors of the book, Experiencing Design, The Innovator's Journey. It's from Columbia Business School Publishing. And uh, her website is experiencelabs.org. So with all that, Karen, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So I I want to explore and we'll we'll talk about the book. I want to hear about some of your connections or the influence of uh, Tom Peters and some other important people in your life and career. But as we usually do here, um, we'll dive right in. I'd love to hear your story. What is your favorite mistake? So my favorite mistake takes me back uh, about 20 years. I um, was working in telecommunications in the go-go years of the 90s. And my husband and I were actually working together. Um, So we had a publishing company together which meant we worked together, um, we invested together. um, And when the bubble burst, um, that also meant that our our livelihood burst um, and our personal investments burst. So my favorite mistake, or I guess the mistake that I learned the most from was not diversifying. Um, Because I was working with my husband, um, all of our professional investments were tied together uh, and our personal investments were tied together at the time. So when the bubble burst and I would say 90% of our clients went bankrupt within about six months of um, the telecom bubble bursting. um, I remembered something my father said, which was Karen, the first principle of investment is to diversify. And, Mm. um, and I wish I, I wish I had done that. Um, we were having a lot of fun in um, in telecom in the 90s, but it yeah. was it was a wise um, lesson to learn because now as we begin to see all this new investment in the metaverse and uh, exciting electrical applications um, with 
flying cars and um, and electric vehicles. It's just a, a good reminder to stay grounded and diversified in those investments. Wow. And yeah, that that's a more immediate impact than having an investment portfolio or retirement portfolio. That's not diversified. If, if you both lose your income at the same time, oh my gosh, that's hard to anticipate. You, you don't want to anticipate something like that could happen, right? Yeah, you don't anticipate something like that could happen. And, and you know, we didn't go bankrupt, thankfully. Um, we hung on for a long time. We hung on for about six years thinking, surely this market is going to come back. Surely this industry is going to come back. And I remember a year after the bubble burst, I was sitting uh, outside with a venture capitalist who had been a good friend to us. And he said, Karen, this market is not coming back for 17 years. 17 years. That's a long time, especially when there was so much investment in the telecommunications industry during the 90s. That seemed impossible to believe and impossible to accept. But, you know, in the end, he was absolutely right. The market still hasn't really, the industry still hasn't come back. I think in large part because the industry has matured. And so it doesn't attract the same kind of wild overinvestment that it had in the 90s. Um, But, you know, that was, that was, uh, it was a hard lesson to learn. Wow. And, you know, and thank you, well, for one, thank you for sharing the story. Thank you for framing it as a learning opportunity. Um, I, I'd be curious to hear then from that learning, as you and your husband decided what to do next professionally, what I'm sure there were some different choices, more diversification yeah. in, in your work. Yeah, yes. Uh, you know, I, I ended up leaving the telecommunications industry. So I hung on for about six years. Um, during that time, we had a daughter and I spent less time in the industry than I had, which gave me time to think, time to read. And, uh, and I married into a family of designers, um, brilliant designers. And so I spent that time really um, delving into new work. And, um, and that ultimately led me to my current professional pursuits and, and innovation, because I was so attracted by um, the work that my husband's grandfather did and the role model that he was for me. Um, and I was able to take a, to take a step back and really reflect on those experiences. Um, so ultimately I left telecommunications and I moved into the innovation space and founded my company um, a couple of years later. And and what did your husband end up doing? Was there, did he stay behind in no, telecom he, or find another direction? <laughs> he yes, he stayed in telecom. He's still in telecom. Um, you know, the industry has changed uh, obviously since um, since the bubble burst. But yes, he's still doing telecommunications work. Um, and enjoys it. So, um, so he stayed in the industry, but I moved on. Yeah. And um, did, did it take a while? You mentioned six years after the bubble burst. Was there a certain, like, how do you find the balance between trying to, to stick with it 
disprove uh, the person who said it was going to be uh, 17 years to recover. I'm curious what was your thought process of stay with it, stay with it. Was it a gradual recognition of, okay, maybe I should move on? Was there something that prompted that more specifically? Yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't any one moment that finally pushed us over the edge or pushed me over the edge. I would say it was multiple moments of recognition that the industry has changed and it's not likely to return to the way it was. And, um, and, and I think I had that conversation in my head all the time, right? That tape is playing. Is it going to come back? Is it not going to come back? Should I make a move? Should I not make a move? Because again, when you make a move out of an industry, you're also making a move away from connections. You're making a move away from a social community of support. And to make a choice to sort of loosen those ties and and to leave that industry um, was not something that I could do overnight. And so I'd say those six years was really a loosening of ties, a loosening of relationships, a, a recognition that there were other things in the world to discover. And I think ultimately when when I reflected back on the experience I had had during the go-go years, I wanted that experience again. And I, and I wasn't having that experience anymore. I wasn't growing professionally. I was hanging on and I didn't like that feeling. I didn't, um, I, I didn't look forward to, you know, doing the work anymore. And and yet the world had moved on and there were exciting things to discover. And I wanted, I wanted that again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and you had made, um, it sounds like a career transition at one point of going from uh, Folgers and P&G brand management. <laughs> and then uh, well, I'd love to hear more about that work, excuse me, and how Tom Peters, um, his how his work helped you, but uh, what was that transition from from P and G into working in telecom? Yeah, well, uh, that seems like a, a really radical shift, doesn't it? Um, so when I when I went to Cincinnati and I took my dream job, and it was my dream job because I'd read In Search of Excellence when I was a junior in college, and. I was so mesmerized, I think, by Tom's writing, if I can call him Tom, Tom's writing. <laughs> I think and... he'd be okay with that. He's pretty casual. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I was so mesmerized by um, the intentionality of the way the companies he wrote about in his book organized themselves built their brands and delivered value for the customers that they were serving. And, um, and I wanted to work for one of those companies and P and G just happened to be one of those companies. And so I actually interviewed um, when I was in college and I didn't get the job, but I wasn't going to be deterred. I, I came back to Washington where I grew up. I worked in politics for about five years and, 
Um, and the work was too slow for me. The, the amount of change that happened in politics and in policy happens very slowly. And so I decided to go to business school and get my MBA so that I could go back to this world that I had read about in Tom's book. And, and then I interviewed with P&G again, got my dream job working on the Folgers brand. We moved to Cincinnati and my husband had gone to the University of Pennsylvania and started taking classes at the University of Cincinnati. And after his first semester, he decided that he was bored and without, I don't know how he did this without my knowing, he signed up for all second year classes, his second semester of his first year, and wrote the business plan for a new business. And so on our third anniversary in August of that summer, he and my father conspired to uh, put together the incorporation papers for a new business. And he said, I'm going to start this new business and I want you to join me. And, you know, I was still a newlywed. Here I was at my dream job, but I was still a newlywed. And David had this big vision. His, his grandfather had been a very successful entrepreneur. And I thought this sounds really exciting. So it seems very unlike me, but I took a big leap. It wasn't without some pain. You know, we had to we had to leave Cincinnati. We moved in with my parents for a year because we still owned a townhouse in Cincinnati that we hadn't been able to sell. Um, and, you know, we bootstrapped the first year of our business, but we made it. And, you know, within a year we were on our own. And within, I think, two years, we had moved out to Idaho, um, which was really a beautiful place to live and and a really important place um, for our growth of our company because we left behind the traffic and and the busyness of city life to land in a very uh, rural but beautiful part of the world in, in Sun Valley and Ketchum, Idaho, where we had extra hours in our day to think. And it was really that reflection and um, thought time, extra thought time that we had available to us that really allowed us to grow our business and aspire to do the things that we wanted to do. And you, you mentioned, um, you know, family of designers and, and you, you didn't do the name dropping. So I'll do this because I thought this was fascinating when I learned this, that um, you're, so I have this right, your, your husband's grandfather was Leroy Grumman of the Grumman Corporation from the aerospace field. Yes, yes. So that's, uh, and now, nowadays, uh, Northrop Grumman, but nowadays a, legend, a legendary Grumman. name in, in aviation. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what, what sort of inspiration flows down through the family of um, his work as a designer and an entrepreneur? Well, he, his influence is extraordinary. First of all, he was a man of very few words. He, and I never met him. Um, uh, he died in 1983 and I, I didn't meet my husband until 1988, but of course he was such a profound influence on the family and, um, and the stories were a very important part of the family dynamic and the family culture. And so because he was a man of very few words, I learned how to use another language because 
he really didn't use an auditory language to communicate. And my mother-in-law really was not a talker either. Um, her favorite courses in college were drawing and design and color. And so I, and I grew up in a family of lawyers. My dad was a lawyer and he uses his voice every day um, in his profession. And so to marry into a family where um, you don't use an auditory language to communicate, it's not like they were deaf or, or mute or anything. It's mm -hmm. just that they used a visual language to communicate. And so Grandfather Grumman really revolutionized naval aviation um, with the prototypes that he built. Um, in the 30s, the Secretary of the Navy came to Grandpa and asked him to double the number of aircraft on aircraft carriers because we were losing the war in the Pacific and we needed to figure out how to get more planes up in the air. And most aviation um, executives were trying to fold the wings of the plane because all planes had fixed wing at that point. So they're trying to fold the wings up and um, they the wings lost the stability when you folded them up. So the story goes that grandpa was sitting at the end of this long table with all of his engineers, brilliant engineers, um, describing their ideas for how we could solve this how he could solve this problem. And he was tinkering at the other end with an eraser and two paper clips and absorbing all of the information, but visualizing how the problem could be solved. He didn't speak a word. And the, the conversation ends at him and he puts this prototype with this simple eraser and two paper clips on the table. And instantly everyone in the room knew that the problem that they had figured out collectively was really the problem of a pivot. And if you could fold the wing back like the wing of a bird, then you could maintain the stability in the wing, but also achieve the folding capability that was required to get that space saving that you needed on, uh, on a ship. And so everyone in the room instantly knew what that meant. And none of it had happened with words, right? It had happened with this very simple visual prototype that was created with everyday objects. And then they took that, that simple prototype to the model maker and had a proper model made um, and took that down to the secretary of the Navy and, and put that wing design, a prototyped wing design on the secretary of the Navy's desk and he instantly knew what that meant. So that wing design went into the Hellcat and the Avenger, um, which were really important planes for us during World War II and helped us win the yeah. war in the Pacific. Oh, that's such uh, that's such a great story about the power of prototyping. Like you, you, you might know the one exercise that's used a lot um, where you're trying to build the tallest tower that you can with dry spaghetti and marshmallows. <laughs> yes, yes. He would have excelled at that, I bet. He would have. <laughs> because like the, the punchline, I think, of that, that whole story is that MBA students, and I, I, you have an MBA, I have an MBA, so I'm not speaking out of turn, that MBA students do very poorly in that challenge because they they talk about it. They, they try to design the perfect design, and then they don't have much time to execute, where little kids start tinkering and experimenting. Right. And kindergartners always outscore MBAs. That's right. I love that story. <laughs> 
So the, you know, there's the power of prototyping and, and that's come through, um, you know, in software design and, and, you know, startup methodologies um, these days. And maybe we can come back to that point, but there's, there's a quote that you shared um, from Leroy Grumman, uh, a rough answer to the right question is better than a detailed answer to the wrong question. And that really speaks to me, like a lot of the work I do of taking a pause to say, have we properly defined the problem? You know, there's, there's a related quote from a different engineer, um, Charles Kettering says something like, a problem well-defined is half solved. Mm-hmm. Similar idea. But yeah. I was curious if you could elaborate on, 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 on Grumman's quote, a rough answer to the right question is better than a detailed answer to the wrong question. Like how, how do you extend that thinking into entrepreneurship and, and innovation? I'm so glad you picked up on that quote. It is one of the most important lessons that I learned from him. And I find myself repeating that phrase often. And especially when I work with innovators, uh, reinforcing to them the value of just starting and doing, right? I think so often we think of prototypes as dress rehearsals for the real thing. And we don't spend the time trying to figure out if we even are asking the right questions. And it is so important to make sure you're you're answering the right question. Because I think what's hard for innovators to believe is that most of the time they're going to get it wrong. Right? We because we're smart, we often equate that with being right. And That's not the case in innovation. In innovation, we are most likely going to be wrong most of the time. So go out, test your assumptions, find out what has to be true for your idea to be a really good idea, and then you will get to success. But by making those small bets frequently, instead of waiting and placing big bets infrequently, you can test your way to success and ensure that you are answering the right question and you're solving the right problem. And, and, and I think that methodology, to me, it's in line with the theme of this podcast of learning from mistakes. Hopefully small mistakes move us forward in a way that prevent large mistakes. I mean, that's really what we're trying to convey here, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. And I I think it's hard for most innovators to accept that that we are going to get it wrong. And, And there is an expectation that we're going to be wrong. You know, in Silicon Valley, the the investors who are at the top of their game, VC investors who are at the top of their game, for every 10 investments they make, only 1.8 are successful. And they are the very best at what they do. And we don't extend that same expectation to ourselves in innovation. We expect to get 10 out of 10 right. And that's just not the case. It's not the math. That's not innovation math. And so it's unrealistic um, to set that expectation on yourself and to set that expectation on others when they're in innovation. Yeah, that's a good point where, yeah, uh, VC investors are diversifying in a way that, that makes me think back to the story, you and your husband. That was, that was unfortunately not a small mistake that prevented larger 
mistakes, but a, a, a good point of if somebody had only invested in Google, okay, yeah, they would have really hit a home run, but chances are they invested in Google and another company or two that did okay. And then a few that were just complete flops. And yeah. like you said, that's just, that's to be expected. And that's a good reminder to the rest of us don't expect perfection. Like even in a company, if we're thinking about different projects or different um, new products, is there a similar thought process of, well, maybe they're not all going to be perfect. They won't all be home runs. That's right. And what I like to tell people is that if you keep an in the innovation inventory, then some of those products, services, experiences that you've designed may not be a home run today, but if you keep them in inventory, they may serve a purpose later. But you have to you have to recognize um, that the way innovation works is that the number of ideas that you have, uh, the large quantity of ideas that you have, will actually yield more successful ideas. It's not about having a high quality of idea. It's about having a large quantity of ideas that will get you to a good idea. Yeah. Um, so again, the, the title of the book, I want to come back to the book here, is uh, Experiencing De Design, The Innovator's Journey. And one of the endorsements on, on the back is from Roger L. Martin, who I'm, I'm a little bit familiar with some of his work when it comes to uh, strategy. And when you use that phrase, what has to be true if I'm if I'm correct, is sort of connected to his work on strategy. This idea of realizing you're not going to have a perfect strategy any more than you might have a perfect prototype, and that you have to move forward, iterate, test, evolve. Is that fair to right. say? Right. And I think what's important for people to recognize is that you can't prove a new idea. You can prove the assumption or you can disprove the assumptions behind a new idea, but you can't prove a new idea until you put it out into the market. So the most important thing you can do as an entrepreneur is identify the assumptions that have to be true for your idea to be a good idea and to create value, and then go about the process of validating those assumptions. And either you validate them and you gain confidence in your idea, or you invalidate them and you make an iteration to your idea so that you get to success faster. And, and so, and I think that's probably one of the goals of, of the book. Um, and, and so one thing I was going to ask you back in your bio, you know, you use this phrase, you know, talk about the importance of effective problem solving in complex social systems. So there's, there's two parts that I was going to ask you to unpack. Uh, maybe first off, but going backward, what, what is a complex social system? Well, I think that's every organization we work in. Yeah, <laughs> right. Sure. Yeah. I, I think um, the way we do work in most organizations, especially most big organizations, um, is in silos. And often when we work in our own particular area of expertise, we are working with other people who use a similar vocabulary and a, have a similar background um, that we do um, professionally, meaning they've been trained in a similar manner. So they recognize the same language. They recognize the same types of data um, that are used for decision-making. 
And um, it's comfortable because we have a certain way of, of working within our particular area of expertise. But then, you know, other divisions of that same organization have also developed their own particular language and their own particular way of working. And so we've got these silos in organizations that function independently from each other and are not able to collaborate and build build products and services together because they don't have a way of working across those differences. And, um, And what we know about innovation is that diverse teams create much better results than um, similar teams and teams that have people with similar um, experiences and, and similar expertise. You have to work across difference within the organization. But we all have grown up figuring out how to do our work in different ways. And so without the social structures, um, processes in place to work across that difference, most organizations you know, let that go by the wayside. And they don't build those cultures of innovation that require work across those silos. What I hear you saying is one of the keys then back to that first part of the phrase, the effective problem solving. One of the keys is breaking down silos. Yes. And and focusing um, in, on, it seemed like another piece of it, and this, maybe this comes back to design thinking and what's in the book, understanding the customer, um, not, not just uh, doing market research of would they use our gadget that we've created, but, you know, understanding, like, you know, there's a, a related phrase that comes to mind from um, um, Clayton Christensen's work of, you know, the problem to be solved and the need to understand that. So how, how does design thinking help us in, in that understanding in a way that leads us to more effective problem solving? Well, let's let's answer that two ways. One is that when we're working in those silos, I think what happens is some um, particular divisions of organizations think that's not my problem, right? I'm not, I'm not the, the marketing. They often marketing gets labeled as, as being responsible for the customer. Um, when in reality, everyone in the organization is a part of creating the experience that you're delivering to a customer, whether it's a product or a service, right? But in in organizations where there are strong silos, customer ownership ends up being somebody's responsibility, and it's usually not mine, right? That's We recognize customers only as data points, but we don't recognize them for the needs. Then the other piece of this is that when we do have responsibility for the customer, we have to move ourselves from understanding that customer from our own perspective and our own experiences to really stepping in to somebody else's world and giving them the benefit of the doubt that they might be having a set of experiences that are different from our own. And that's that is the becoming and moving from egocentricity to empathy, which is mm-hmm. criti- absolutely critical in the work that we do in design thinking and really the work in creating value for our customers. And, you know, looking at the book, I mean, you know, 
people might think a book about design is focused on uh, you know the the product that you're designing or the service that you're creating. But you know there's there's four four, you know, four chapters here on the discovery process. So why you know for for the listener here, the potential reader of the book, why is that discovery process so important? To what 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 happens during that process? Yeah, well let me let me back up one step and and tell you that we wrote the book for the users of design thinking and and really anyone that's doing innovation. Like you said, there are a lot of books out there that address the topic of how to make a better widget or how to create a better service. And that's not why we wrote this book. We really wrote this book for the people who were doing the innovation work to help them understand what it takes in terms of mindset and behavior shifts in order to do that work well. And and so we've broken that into phases. We have a a pretty um, repeatable framework formats in the structure um, that we've written the book that creates some wayfinding for that. And you're right, we we have a big section on discovery because we think that um, that first half of the innovation process, when we are trying to understand really what the attributes of our ideal solution are, require so many mindset shifts and behavior shifts in ourselves in order to be successful. And the the rest of the work really depends on those fundamental shifts taking place in order for us to be really curious about the people we're solving for and and be able to shift our own thinking um, to be able to solve for the people that we're serving. Yeah. And and, and I flagged the page here. It talks about some of these mindset shifts. That's not an easy phrase to say. (laughs) Mindset shifts. I say that very carefully. I stumbled over it. It could have been worse. Um, Things that, you know, I don't do work in innovation per se, but when I work with organizations around continuous improvement, like I think there's a fine line or a spectrum there, but, you know, for one, it says, you know, the shift from needing to be right and avoiding failure to a mindset that's willing to be wrong. And maybe there's a part there of willing to admit (laughs) being wrong. That's right. So I think listeners of this podcast um, are probably cool with the idea of admitting the willingness to be wrong. And then there's this other part here or a couple things of instead of looking for proof that I'm right, testing ideas as hypotheses and being willing to disprove your ideas, as you mentioned earlier. So if you could kind of elaborate on like, is it is that easier said than done? Oh, sh- absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I'm working with a set of innovators right now who are riding what we call the innovation roller coaster. You know, the, the days that your assumptions are invalidated is a is a steep dive on that roller coaster. And the days where your assumptions are validated is, you know, a great ride up to the top. But it's this constant moving from validation to invalidation. Um, and it's not a ride that everyone is willing or able to take. I would say that for a lot of people, I would say for probably 75% of the people that I work with, innovation is a fragile environment to willingly step into. 
A, because there's so much ambiguity, right? Again, back to this question about figuring out what the right question is to even be solving. There's a lot of ambiguity around that that you and a lot of discomfort that you have to be willing to accept. Um, and not everybody is comfortable with that ambiguity. I often say that doing this work is sometimes like working in a hoarder's house because you do all this research, you collect all this information, and then it's sort of dumped into this room and you have to try and find the one or two gems that are going to really help you create real value for your customers. But that means you have to sort through a lot of junk in order to find those gems. And not everybody is willing to do that or wants to do that. And then when it comes to testing, I think finding out that you're wrong, that stings. There's no, there's no other way around that. Listen, we all identify as being smart. And like I said earlier, we often equate being smart with being right. And to find out that our assumptions are wrong, that stings. It, it, yeah. It's not for everyone. Maybe it can. Maybe it's possible to build up some toughness around that, or getting more comfortable. Maybe tough, toughness isn't the right word. Comfort, comfort with that discomfort, yes. and recognizing. Yeah. Um, I love your roller coaster analogy. Like the first time you go down that steep hill, if you don't hit the brakes, that downward motion gives energy to come back up at least part way. If the next hill up isn't too steep to require the the click clack mechanism that 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 pulls you up. I guess a roller coaster is only fun because after that first big tall climb, the rest of it is just continued motion of the downward leading to the next uh next up uphill climb and that's right. The the next fun curve that makes you say we (laughs) (laughs) that's right. And that is that is the constant day-to-day work of innovation is um the not knowing, right? You never know um, what's around the corner. And, uh, but you also never know the highs that you're going to experience, which I think are exhilarating um, for most people. Um, And it sure is, I think it sure beats being bored day in and day out in a job that maybe um, doesn't provide that same sort of exhilaration. Well, and it could be um, exhilarating to have a book published. So let me come back to the book before we wrap up here. Um, Experiencing Design, The Innovator's Journey. Um, With your other co-authors, was that an example of three women from different silos or different perspectives coming together to write this? Well, uh, I met Jean, um, who Jean Litka, who's already a best-selling author. And um, I think this is her sixth or seventh book with... um, Uh, with experiencing design. I met her about seven years ago and she was writing her last, she was just about to start writing her last book. And she sent out a call for papers or for, um, for uh, stories, I think. And, um, And she was looking for stories of federal innovators in the DC area. And I'm based in DC. And so I think I just responded to an email that she sent out. Yeah. Hey, I'm I'm working in innovation in DC. I know some people that are doing some interesting things. Um, maybe we could have a Zoom call, or I guess not even a Zoom call. I guess let's just have a call 
And, um, and, you know, I can share some of, of my contacts. She said, well, I'm going to be in DC. Why don't we get together? So three hours later, after this wonderful coffee that we had, um, we started to share um, the work that we were doing. And, and she very graciously um, brought me into her world. Um, and I often say that working with Jean Lipka is like working with an Olympic athlete. She's at the top of her game. She's always pushing new boundaries. She's so eager and hungry for learning and research. And I just felt really lucky to um, work with her and, and to really dive into her world of research. And then Jessica um, was Jean's research assistant. And, um, and we were having so much fun, the three of us working together, that um, we asked, um, we asked Jessica to come and join us. So um, Jessica's doing uh, a lot of great work. She's based in Philadelphia, and she's doing a lot of great work in this field as well. So I feel very lucky and privileged to have two amazing co-authors um, to do this work with. That's great. You know, Jean is at the uh, the Darden School of Business at the University yes. of Virginia, a great yes. school, uh, of, of course. So um, I wanted to ask uh, maybe one other question about the book. And it, it's a meta question in a way, not about the metaverse. <laughs> a meta question about fly, uh, applying the ideas in this book to the writing of the book, namely, like with a book, can you test your way to success? And where there's certain assumptions of what must be true for this book uh, to have an impact or to be successful. Absolutely. So we really used a design approach to writing the book. We immersed ourselves in the research, um, which is what we write about in the book. We made sense of the data that, that we found. Um, If you had seen my office during that time, I had, thousands of sticky notes on big blackboards um, that I used to try and find patterns in the data that we were collecting. And then, of course, we had to align all together on what we thought that meant. And sometimes we were aligned, sometimes we were not aligned. And we had to work through that as any team works through um, trying to develop a a clear point of view on what we thought our data was telling us. And then we began um, developing some brand new frameworks that we had not used in any of our work before that could help us understand um, what we were trying to offer to our reader. And it was, um, and, and then of course we, because this is an academic book, we had to send this out for peer review before we ever um, published. So in that way, we, we did test it. We sent it out to colleagues of our own, but we also had to send it out as part of the peer review process. Um, and these are blind um, reviews. So we don't know who was reviewing the book and um and they needed to be able to tell our publisher whether they thought the world needed this book or the world mm. did not need this book. I yeah. guess we did okay. They thought we needed this book. <laughs> yeah. um, but at the very end, you know, we, we were at the 11th hour and we added a whole new section to the book because in having conversation with the people that we were sharing our work with and in really sort of wrapping a bow around the work that we had done, 
we realized that we needed a way for people to implement the entire, you know, first chapters of the book. And we hadn't done that. And so we created this personal development plan um, that is at the end of the book. No wonder. (laughs) Um, And that actually, we still had a publishing deadline. So we, we added this personal development plan. It's an analog copy that's in the book. But that set us on this year-long journey since we turned in our manuscript to develop an assessment tool that we just published three weeks ago um, that is really an add-on to the book. So the work continues. We had to we had to publish it. We had a publishing deadline. And so we, so we published what we had, but the work continues. And we're so thrilled now with the outcome um, to extend this work even further um, mm-hmm. with this innovation mindsets assessment that we launched with our partners in London. We, we launched it with um, Treehouse Innovation. Um, so anyone can take this assessment and understand their um, their skill levels um, as it applies to the skill level that um, the minimum viable competencies that we write about in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's it's a very interesting uh, assessment here. Um, many many pages of you know things where people do uh, you know, evaluate their. Uh, it's fair to say like evaluate how far you are along in that mind. Oh, try again. Mindset shift. How far along you are in the mindset shift. Yes. And that's the, that's the innovator's journey. You know, when we wrote the book, our working title was the innovator's journey. And at the, again, at the 11th hour, our publisher said, we need to call this experiencing design. And then the second half tagline is the innovator's journey. And we thought, yes, that's exactly right. The, what we've written about is what you, the transformation that you will experience in that journey when you experience design. Um, and it really is that journey of, um, of becoming someone new in the process. Um, and it's not a static moment in time. It's, it is a journey. And, and the innovation mindset assessment will give you a snapshot of what that looks like today. And the personal development plan will then give you a way to help you develop as a person and work on those skills that you want to work on. Yeah, well, that's great. So um, Karen, thank you. I'm going to hold the book up again. Um, Our guest today has been Karen Hold, the founder of Experience Labs. Um, Again, the website is experiencelabs.org. The book is Experiencing Design, The Innovator's Journey, and it's published by or published through Columbia Business School Publishing. Karen, thank you so much for you know not just sharing your story, but for the great conversation about the book and the things you're working on. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been a treat. Well, thanks again to Karen Hold for a great discussion today. To learn more about her, to learn about Experience Labs and her book, look for links in the show notes, or you can go to markraven.com slash mistake158. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work, and they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. 
If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.